This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 511 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 369 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show two Marine Raiders, Don Tran and Prime Hall. So we discuss a host of topics from their journey in the military and through into special operations, finding underwater fitness, developing both deep end fitness and the underwater torpedo league, 
the relationship between opium and terrorism, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do love reading the things that you write and then leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly elevates this podcast and makes it easier for people looking for a project like this to find it. And as I mentioned over and over again, this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Don Tran and Prime Hall. Enjoy. Don and Prime, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having us, brother. Yeah, thanks for having us, bro. So we're where? On, thank you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? We are in a parking lot right now in Irvine, California. Uh, we're at one of our pool locations. We were shooting um, a little video, a profile video for a WeFunder uh, fundraising campaign that we're about to, to launch in a few weeks. So we're taking care of some business and then uh, taking a little bit of the time to have a great conversation with you. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. I just obviously we closed our video off now, but when I saw you, it reminded me of Carpool Karaoke. So I might have to have a song from you at the end. <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> yeah. We've both been in the Philippines a few times, so that's yeah. all they do there. So we're, we're professionals now. Yeah. <laughs> no karaoke. All right, so I like to start at the very beginning. So obviously, I'll kind of direct uh, to each one of you. Um, but I like to get some background, some some early life stuff, so that we can lead through to the military and then what you've done since that. So starting with you, Don, um, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Sure. So I was born and raised in Long Beach, California. Uh, my parents came over from Vietnam uh, after the Vietnam War in 1975. Uh, my mom um, was a florist for a long time that she ended up working up at uh, as a teller at Bank of America. And then my dad uh, was working as uh, an electrical engineer um, for a few different um, companies. But I think he retired from uh, Raytheon at his end of his career. I have two sisters, Sarah and Monica, one older and one younger. We're both about a year, a year and a half apart. Um, and they're both uh, in L.A. right now. And I'm living in Long Beach, California. Beautiful. And uh, what, did you hear any kind of stories that resonate with you as far as your parents moving here from Vietnam? I had a Tu Lam who was a, a Green Beret and he had a pretty powerful story of their journey into the US with him as an infant. Um, what about your parents? What drove them over here? Yeah, so uh, my dad fought in the South Vietnamese Navy and uh, during, right after the war, they kind of the collapse of uh, the southern Vietnam, um, they were just fleeing pretty much refugees over. So they actually went over to um, the Philippines for a little bit and then over to Guam. Um, and then they both got sponsored by uh, two American families. So they, my parents actually didn't meet until they were in America. But my dad was sponsored by a Catholic family out in Iowa and my mom was sponsored by uh, a Christian family in Connecticut. Uh, but just the journey that, that it took them to get over to America uh, was insane. You know, they were actually in Camp Pendleton for a little bit, uh, where I served most of my career. 
um, in refugee camps before going out to those um, locations. But my dad came over with his younger sister and his father and was able to uh, get a college degree in America in the University of Iowa um, in physics. And then he was able to get an engineering degree and or, I mean, engineering job and pretty much brought like eight of his brothers and sisters over from Vietnam as a sponsor himself um, a few years shortly after that. So just a powerful story of how, you know, resilient and uh, driven um, people are coming over from um, Vietnam and really the opportunity that America gave our family is amazing. So we're extremely grateful for that. No, it is. Now, I used to live in um, Huntington Beach, but right on the, the border of Westminster. And obviously, there was a lot of um, Vietnamese family there. Do you know what the history was as far as why California and Orange County became such a hub for Vietnamese immigrants? I actually don't know that. Uh, but there's a lot of Vietnamese people there. Uh, I think the biggest population in America is definitely in um, Garden Grove, Westminster area. I, I don't know the history behind that. Do you? No, I just think it's interesting because you think the you know the lush forests would drive them more towards like the Florida area rather than the arid <laughs> California mountains. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll look into that though, and I'll get I'll get back to you. For yeah, sure. I'm just I'm just interested. Pure pure tangent. All right. Um, just staying with you for a moment. What about uh, school age as far as athletics? Were you into aqua- aquatic activities then, or were you more land sports? I was more land sports, so I did uh, track, a little bit of uh, soccer, and I played badminton in in high school. So it was all land, uh, a lot of running. Um, but yeah, so I never really got into aquatics uh, until I actually joined the military. Um, yeah, so in the Marine Corps, you do a little bit of uh, water survival qualifications every year, um, but that was about the extent of it until uh, I met Prime and I was working at a Marine Corps. Camp Pendleton's um, pool as a water survival instructor. So that's really where I started my journey into um, swimming and, and doing the work underwater. Brilliant. Well, I want to lead up to that, but let's get Prime in first. So Prime, same question. Um, where were you born and then your family dynamic? Yeah, so I was born in East Texas uh, in a place called Longview. And uh, I quickly moved to Corpus Christi, Texas. So um, down on North Padre Island. Um, and very south of Texas. So if you take it, it's like down by a couple hours from Mexico. Um, and I spent, uh, the, the majority of my, uh, early years down there and then down, uh, in South Padre Island area in the Rio Grande Valley. That's like right there on the border. Um, my parents, uh, my, my dad was a professional surfer when he was growing up and then he switched, uh, and he got into the oil field after he had, he had a motorcycle injury and he went into the oil field and, uh, he's, he's been into, uh, oil and gas and refineries and that, um, mechanical engineering of, uh, pumps and air compressors and stuff like that. Um, pretty much since then, uh, my mom has, uh, is a business operations manager. And so she worked at banks and did different stuff when I was growing up, but, um, that's what she does now. Uh, I got <clears throat> my parents divorced whenever I was about 13. And then my mom moved away with my, I have a younger sister. Uh, they moved away and then I lived with my dad for a little while. And then uh, I ended up living, uh, kind of, uh, in an apartment when I was about 13, 14, 15, that was on my own. And then my grandparents came and sent me to military boarding school. And that's how I got into the military life. 
and it was a Marine military academy. And so you're, you're on lockdown as a 15, 16 year old, um, in boot camp and you got real life drill instructors from the Marine Corps and stuff like that. So it was a pretty good, like, indoctrination into the Marine Corps. So after I got done with high school, I ended up going in and obviously that was uh, when the Iraq war was really kicking off. And so, um, so I kind of felt a calling, not like just as a patriot, but just as a person that I needed to get it, go do something and that I already had a baseline of that life. So that answer the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now you mentioned your dad being a professional surfer. Did you find yourself in the water a lot when you were younger? Yes, not with my dad a lot, but with my, uh, one of my grandmothers used to take me and my grandmother was a synchronized swimmer when she was in college. And so she would take me to the pool like every week at the, uh, at her country club or the neighborhood pool or whatever it was. And, uh, so <clears throat> I would be in these like little swim, like a uh, swimsuit model competitions and stuff like that when I was like two years old and three years old and stuff. So. I've always, I didn't have, I was never on a swim team when I was growing up, but I always lived like in these areas of Texas where it's an island and it's the Gulf of Mexico. So there's waves and you're out in the ocean. But then also I grew up just going to a neighborhood pools every summer and then on the weekends and stuff like that. That makes sense. So I was a kind of a water, water enthusiast, but just, uh, you know, in my own way, I've always kind of relaxed in the water, you know, and t- and even if on, on at times in my life where I had no time off on the weekends, even if I just got like an hour to go get in the pool and then lay in the sun, that that would be like my reset. Beautiful. Well, you kind of touched on your journey into the military, but I want to get back to to Dom for a second. You guys did a podcast together on on your own, leaving the wire podcast. And Don, you talked about some of the mistakes you made as a younger man and how that almost threatened you entering the military. So if you're comfortable doing it, I'd love to hear some of the the childhood events that happened and then how you were able to get yourself into the military. Yeah, so uh, when I was in high school, um, I think I had pretty good grades in like my freshman and sophomore year, uh, but kind of got lost into, uh, I went to a private school from kindergarten to eighth grade in a Catholic school, so I was pretty sheltered growing up. Uh, at a young age, uh, and then went to high school and I was kind of exposed to a private or a public school where, um, it was in Long Beach on the east side. So exposed to a lot more culture, a lot more adversity, uh, and, uh, stressors, as you could say, <laughs> with, uh, gangs, um, and just like a kid being mischief. So I kind of got into that realm a little bit, um, and was hanging around the wrong crowd of people, got, um, into a lot of trouble going in and out of juvie, um, stealing cars and, and, uh, and things like that. So, um, I was really trying to get away from that going into the military. I was looking for an escape, trying to get myself out of that situation so I wouldn't go further down. And so, um, I saw this commercial with, uh, the dragon, um, this Marine fighting a dragon. So that was my calling. And I felt like, uh, <laughs> I wanted to join the Marine Corps because I wanted to do something cool like that. So that was kind of, kind of resonated with me and kind of started me in the process of, Hey, I want to be a Marine. Um, shortly after that, uh, I joined, oh, I, in my senior year, I kind of dropped out of high school because I was doing really bad in school. Um, and I was trying to join the Marine Corps early, but, uh, I didn't have my GED or my high school diploma yet. So I ended up going back, uh, into high school to finishing my high school diploma and, uh, leaving right after I graduated high school to kind of get away from that path. Yeah. Now you mentioned about having, you know, some arrests on the record. So how were you able to overcome that? Um, it's still on there. 
Um, but uh, the Marine Corps at the time was really, um, like Prime was saying earlier, really in the heat of uh, the Iraq war. So they were accepting a lot more people than maybe um, a little bit more lenient on the prereqs going in, on the criminal records and stuff like that going in. So um, they were really needed people. So I think that's how I got kind of slipped through the cracks and, and got in the Marine Corps. Well, just staying on that for a second, I had uh, David Goggins is supposed to be coming on at some point, but you know, in his book, he talks about mistakes he made, and he was actually able to find someone who appealed this case and got that removed from his record. With your experience being in, you know, in, in an environment where you made mistakes, like so many of us di- uh, do, what is your philosophy on more leniency when it comes to a past, when it, whether it's military, whether it's first responders, with that career basically forging? you know, uh, valuable men and women if they're actually allowed to enter the service? I think that if they have a calling and, and like they're trying to move forward and push forward and to better themselves, I think that the opportunity should be allowed there. Um, and I didn't really mess up once I joined into the military because I was kind of um, put into an environment where it was a lot more controlled and you were kind of forced to uh, go by the rules or else fail. And I never wanted to fail. Um, so that was my drive to kind of succeed within the military and the infantry uh, during my time there to really kind of refocus my um, mindset to becoming something better. So I think that's what drove me in the beginning as well to kind of get out of that environment and do something else uh, instead of continuing to mess up. So if the opportunity is there to succeed uh, and the opportunity is there for um, that person to want to change, I think that it should be given to them for sure. Yeah, and I agree 100%. Right. Well, Prime, back to you then. So lead us through with the history you had of, you know, firstly, the, you know, the, the physical side being in the water, but then secondly, going through the Marine um, schools. What was your entry boot camp, et cetera, like? You know, what, what was that journey like for you specifically? Um, really, it was kind of like a trip, like a blended reality, because I literally I went through a Marine Corps boot camp whenever I was in boarding school. It wasn't, it, it, we did a crucible. We did a lot of the same stuff and then we marched everywhere that we went. So I had a lot of those like things that you learn in boot camp. I, I already went in knowing I just had to kind of knock the ru- rust off a little bit and I was like right back in there. So it was kind of a trip. Also, I had people in my, in my platoon and boot camp, Marine Corps boot camp that I was at military boarding school with. And I was like, wow, man, this doesn't even make sense. I didn't, and so, uh, but then, um, you know, it was, uh, I don't know. I didn't have a lot of, uh, kind of vision for what I wanted in the, in the Marine Corps. I was kind of taking it like a day at a time at the beginning and, uh, kind of had like my finger up in the wind and I don't think, and so that, that, did, that, that didn't work for me for too long. So I got in, unlike Don, I got into some trouble when I first got into the Marine Corps, um, just lashing out at superiors, um, and stuff like that, especially whenever I would have a few drinks. Um, so, uh, after that, I kind of, I, <clears throat> I made up my mind and I went 10 years sober, no alcohol at all. And, uh, well, then, and that's what set me up for success, uh, to be able, I don't think I would have even had a shot of making any special operations or anything had I not shut down the drinking like two years prior to and just gotten straight focused and, and doing all types of training and really pushing my mind uh, to the next level. But also I was winning a lot of, I was having a lot of wins because I was uh, very extremely disciplined and I was following the rules that I laid out for myself on a daily basis 
which which gave me a lot more confidence than I had had before that. Right. Well, you both mentioned alcohol, you know, when when you were younger, and it's something that has come across my radar a few times. The military, the first responder professions, we tend to attract people who have had some sort of traumatic past, whether it's a subconscious uh, desire to break the cycle if there's abuse or whatever it is, or um, the the protector element that you, you know, you, maybe you were the victim, now you want to be the protector. But whatever the history is, there are so many of the men and women that come into our professions that are bringing something through the front door that already have some baggage that they, they have. And one of my philosophies is, is I did, uh, I mean, so many psych tests in, in the various departments that I work for, um, lied my way through several polygraphs. And it was a complete fucking waste of money, to be honest, because I mean, if you, if you, I think I heard Don talking about the psych tests. So you answer all these stupid questions and it'll be like, you know, do you like flowers? Do you like badgers? Do you like touching kids? Do you like helicopters? And you're like, wait, wait, what? You know, so it's, it's completely bogus and it's basically to cover their ass. So my philosophy is taking that same funding and put you know actually putting the the military or the first responder candidates through counseling just letting them sit down and talk to a counselor develop a relationship especially if they're in a in a first responder community that that will be the person to go to for the rest of their career but to be able to offload some of the the mental baggage whether it's addiction whether it's trauma whatever it is so that as you said then you can be a better soldier better marine better firefighter so what's your what's your kind of looking back now what's your philosophy on addressing mental health at the front door in the marines i think that one thing that really worked well for me was uh uh well, first off, in the Marine Corps, there's a stigma, at least, you know, there has been for a while since back in the day that you don't want to be going to medical and you don't want, you know, there's work to be done. So everybody's working or, or on mission or training and you're going to medical. So you're you're basically not helping the team and the unit. So uh, kind of uh, what, what ends up the second and third order effects of that are people don't go to medical so they don't get treatment. So then they just hold in whatever injuries or mental shit they're, they have going on and it just festers and grows. And then it ends up being like a time bomb for either their health or, you know, their behavior, or their relationships or whatever else. So whenever I was getting out, I really wanted to go to this Exos Rehabilitation Strength Program. And they told me that in order for me to go to that, I had to do this program with the psych first. So I had to do a six-week program with the psych. And really that's what opened me up to like different healing stuff since I've been out was that. Um, so I, th- I think if they would have said, Hey, whenever I got back from my first deployment, you have to see the psych, you know, and you can't go to any schools and you can't like go do any, even go home on leave until you see the psych or whatever that is. You know what I mean? I think if they built it in earlier, it would have been way more beneficial yeah, and what what did that look like? The three weeks, you know, what what kind of treatment, counseling modalities, etc., were you using? For that one, it was enhanced exposure therapy. So essentially, you're 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 recalling all of the worst memories that come to your mind, like your top three uh, memories overseas that haunt you or bother you, and you you go through them and you record yourself and you say it in front of the psych, and then you and then you listen to yourself. On the, you listen to the recording for homework and then you go through it again and again and again. And what happens is the first couple of times that you say it, because you not, you never told the, some of the stories before, you'll spike 
at the beginning once you start getting into it and then you'll be in that like fight or flight that whole time but then as you get more exposure to to just getting going through it like reps you'll spike less and less and less and less and so then it that that memory or whatever has less control over you that makes sense in my experience yeah no it does completely it seems to be the same kind of philosophy behind emdr where, where you recall um you know traumatic events but they're they're stimulating the left or the right side of the brain at the same time to, to get that short-term memory to become a long-term memory and less uh reactive yeah and then uh the last thing that i don't have experience with emdr but i have done i have friends have done it i've done the uh, rapid response therapy as well and that's where they kind of they hypnotize you and they go into your subconscious memory bank and they start pulling out what they call bad data files or, or uh, ones that are bothering you and they basically delete them or, you know, that's what it feels like when you come out of it. Brilliant. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so back to you, Don. I mean, obviously, you both had the same path at this point, but how did you find yourself entering the Raiders specifically? Um, yeah, so I was uh, really, after two years or uh, two deployments to Iraq, um, my unit was set to go off into a Westpac, so pretty much a deployment in the Pacific uh, floating around on a Navy ship. So I felt like I didn't get enough of the war or the kind of combat and uh, that kind of um adrenaline rush so i was looking forward to do something better so i tried out for a sniper platoon um uh, which i made it and i didn't get to go to sniper school so i was kind of upset and resent like about the choices that my leadership made so i was looking for a different path to really kind of um continue that fight for myself so i found this trailer that was across the street from our little camp that prime and i both checked into um that that had Marine Raiders on it. So I, I didn't really know what it was at the time. Actually, I didn't say Marine Raiders. It said Marsha, um selection, uh, assessment and selection or something like that. So I went across the street and these guys were wearing um, different uniforms than we were, um, cooler boots that were unauthorized for the Marine Corps at the time. So it was extremely attractive. Like, oh, these guys are the cool guys. Maybe we can go in there and check it out and see what's going on there. So that's how I really got started. Learned a little bit about the program and then um, put in my package to go got a lot of pushback from my unit initially because we were in the middle of a workup getting ready to go on this deployment. Uh, but luckily, one of my old uh, platoon commanders uh, tried out for a assessment selection as well. He didn't make it, but uh, he was able to sign all my paperwork off and kind of backdoor my unit um, to get me a, a seat into this assessment selection. So that's how I kind of got into it, and that's where I met Brian. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, just to educate us, because I mean, some of the audience is military, some are a first responder and, you know, civilian when it comes to military service. Um, what are the radars, the radars, excuse me, what are the raiders and how does that differentiate to uh, recon? Sure. So uh, the Marine Raiders are uh, a component of SOCOM. Uh, so we operationally fall directly under SOCOM. So mission sets, uh, we fall under SOCOM um, and the recon guys will fall under uh, Marine leadership or a Marine command, either a MU, a MEB, or a MEF. Um, and on the mission, the, really though, our difference um, that we do is we do a little bit more of the intelligence collecting side than um, the re Marine recon guys do. Um, they really focus on the amphibious, littoral, going into uh, from sea to land, uh, and really getting that piece for the big Marine Corps piece. And we focus on mission sets for SOCOM, pretty much like white side soft 
what the Green Beret does, um, the Navy SEALs do in uh, foreign countries and now foreign, training foreign military forces uh, to go fight with them if that's uh, what the area needs in that, in that time. Um, and then our selection process was a little bit longer. So we have assessment selection, which is now six weeks going into um, a year and a half training school. We learn a language, patrolling, shooting, direct action, um, amphibious operations, we go to steer school and a, a few different things that are pretty similar to the recon guys, but uh, more focused on um, training partner nation force and going to fight with them. Beautiful. So yeah, the false multiplier. Yes, exactly. Brandon, what was the language that you chose? Uh, I didn't choose a language that was given to me. Um, it was uh, most like the Marine Corps. A lot of things uh, in the Marine Corps is given to you and not by your choice, but I learned Tagalog. Um, I was, and then I deployed to the Philippines a few times as well um, with that language. Gotcha. I'm familiar with it because my mother-in-law is Filipino. <laughs> oh, nice. And he went, to, he went to Tagalog right after I finished Tagalog. Six-month language course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's funny to learn Tagalog because then you go to the Philippines and you start speaking Tagalog to, to a local there and they speak English back to you. You're like, damn, man, I'm trying to, I mean... It does kind of it builds rapport with them because they know that you're speaking their language, but at the same time, like they're gonna speak English back to you the majority of the time. It's, it's kind of funny it's a story that because the best thing you could do when you learn a language is understand what people are talking shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the first time I went over to the Philippines, I I didn't know how much hate they have. I'm Vietnamese, so they don't. I didn't know how much hate they had for the Vietnamese people, but I told them I was Vietnamese. And they were not working with me whatsoever, mm. the commanders over there. And um, even though I spoke the language, so I didn't tell them off the bat, but I was just listening to them talk shit about me. So I was like, man, this is horrible. So the next deployment I went over, I just told them I was Filipino. <laughs> and they didn't know. And I spoke the language. So it was like a, it was an instant in to all the commanders. And it was like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. Let's get him in the mission. So that really helped us out uh, the second time I was over there. Um, but yeah, it's just a funny story and dynamic for uh, working with other partner nation forces. Yeah, it was interesting. I lived in Japan for 15 months and I had, you know, basically racism towards me being a gaijin by some of the older Japanese. But when they found out I was English, not American, they changed and it was almost like the opposite. So we're we're the same exact people. But I guess because, you know, the U.S. specifically was the one that dropped the bombs and you know the 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 front line of the pacific fight that was that but even though we were allies in the war i think i don't know if it's the the parallel kind of royalty um manners you know all that kind of thing that the british have too but yeah i mean it was like a 180 the moment that I, they found out i was english versus american they were like super smiley and friendly and i'm like that's crazy because i look exactly the same as all the americans around me <laughs> so yeah i can relate yeah, the racism outside of America is 100% real as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. People don't feel like, you don't know what it's like. Actually, <laughs> I, I've, I've seen that window. <laughs> All right, well then, um, back to, to Prime, and obviously, again, Don, feel free to, to chime in as well. But one thing I always ask anyone who's deployed, anyone who's, who's seen active combat is, as civilians, you know, we get this polarizing um kind of example of war and we're shown it on on television either a very anti-war sentiment or you know someone's even a very pro-war which is not taking into account that americans are over there dying because of you know politics for example so what i ask the actual members of the military is you know through your own eyes 
what was there a specific event a first time where you realized that despite whatever it was that got you there in the first place politics religion that you as a member of the military witnessed atrocities that regardless of politics those people needed to be protected be protected from the shitbags that you were hunting oh yeah yes, 100% yeah yeah and uh and also on top of that like um you know i like i really think back to afghanistan cuz i worked with a lot of the local police that was my job was to work with the locals and so i really connected with the afghans there for sure and wanted to do the best that we could to um set them up for success cuz obviously we weren't going to be there forever but also uh feeling a sense of like you know just really protecting everyone to the, to your left and right you know like you you you're out in the middle of nowhere in the, in an enemy village or like in a place like that so you know what i mean we're not like you're not carrying around an american flag the whole time if that makes sense you're really just out there protecting your 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 people and your team as much as possible and anyone that i mean there's people that come out there to these places and they're not ready for it either so you'll have a a uh generator mechanic or something that ends up out there in the enemy village and we get attacked imagine how they respond to that you know what i mean so you got to take you you got to protect everybody that's out there it's not just it's not just a bunch of special operations people with you if that makes sense no it does and another thing that i hear from so many people that come on the show is and this isn't a surprise but but is that they witness the exact same family dynamics in Afghanistan, in Iraq, or wherever they're deployed at the time, as they see back home in Iowa or Florida or you know, the UK. So, you know, were there any specific events where you you remember, you know, a very childlike normal event happening, but it was, you know, within a war zone? No, uh, I would actually say yeah. Afghanistan was a little bit different in yeah. family dynamics. For, for sure. And I, I know that it 100% depends on the specific area that you are in. But where I was at in the Hellman and in, in Sangin uh, area, there was, their family dynamics was a lot different. There's a lot less care, actually, um, in some of the families giving to their kids or going out and, and doing different things and not for the sake of the family, but kind of for the sake of themselves, depending on family's base, of course. But I did see that quite often. Yeah, and then the one thing that I that sticks out of my mind was uh, I I rarely saw any females in Afghanistan, but one time when, whenever we were in Iraq, I, I don't think I had seen a female in a couple months, and we were driving around and we just we were driving around this village in in Iraq and we saw like we were basically had the high ground so we could see into the backyards and we saw these like uh wives or mothers or whatever they were that were out there and it was just, i was just thinking like wow man the, the iraqi women are just like it, it it looked like a movie like it looked like an art you know film or something like that it was just like the most beautiful woman out in her backyard is just in the middle of a war zone is the trip is the crazy part about it you know yeah well and that's what i love hearing i mean the the, the humanity amongst all this you know chaos and terror is, is is beautiful when people talk about you know the seeing the dad fixing his car while the kids are kicking a football around or you know whatever it is it paints a, a much more humane picture for us and, and it also paints i think a, a a more realistic picture for the complexity of what you guys have to do so you know 
the World War II era, it was pretty easy to figure out which were the Nazis and which were, you know, the British, for example. But the the landscape that you're in, I mean, how can you tell who's the the father that just wants to stay out of everything, and and which one is the one that's the bomb maker? Yeah, you really can't. That's the that's the trick. Sometimes he's on the route. Sometimes it's the same guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's not doing it because he wants to kill Americans. He's doing it because he needs money um, for to feed his family or to feed himself as well. Or or they extorted him and they got his family and they're and now he has to do it. Mm. Also true. It's like it's like cartel. It's like kind of cartel rules over there too. But on like it, it's wild. It's like the wild, wild west in Helmand whenever, uh, 2012, whenever Don and I were out there. Now, just a, a side note and something I've, I've asked a couple of people um, that have been out there. Have you witnessed any link between the illicit drug trade and funding groups like this? Yeah, so generally the fighting season starts after the poppy is uh, produced and sold and then... Uh, so you're coming out of winter time and, uh, and the, and the first batch of poppies sold like in March, beginning of March, into February, beginning of March. And that's when after that, then it's game on because they have, now they bought all their ammunition and weapons. And so now they're fighting, now you're fighting until the next winter time. I mean, of course, we, we patrol through so many poppy fields, uh, weed fields, but, um, I didn't really see the exact benefits of the actual money pushing out to the higher echelons of the organizations, right? I, most of the times we were in these villages seeing the lower echelons and what the immediate funds they bought was, which was more ID making materials, more weapons, uh, or motorcycles or, or small cars. But uh, for the direct drug trade, pushing further in the higher echelon, I didn't see much of that um, during my time over there. Right. So so just playing devil's advocate, because I've had some you know, several guests on the show um, talking about you know addiction and, and the the drug epidemic that we have, and you look at the history of drug prohibition, and it was founded on a very horrendous racial you know racist uh, element at the failure of alcohol prohibition, and now we're a hundred years in, you see the ripple effects of putting power and money into the hands of criminals through through the way we do drugs. Hypothetically, if drugs were legalized like they have been in Portugal and Switzerland, where they've had, you know, to be honest, very, very good results. I've actually been and sat in front of one of the guys in Portugal that, that spearheaded the campaign there and saw it with my own eyes. Taking the demand away, would if if illicit drugs were were made legal, I'm talking about addiction, I'm not talking about selling, I'm not talking about smuggling, but addicts became patients instead of criminals. Would that have a ripple effect on funding terrorism as well? Do you think? Hundred, I, I, in my opinion, yes. Um, and and for me, like where my kind of stance is on all that stuff is, since I got out three years ago and I've done a lot of healing work, and when I got out, I was on like over fifteen medications um, and stuff like that. I was medically separated, and now I'm on zero medications. Um, but I'm more Eastern medicine practicing now, if you think about it. So Western is pharmaceutical and basically like, you know, you need someone to come save you And Eastern medicine is you find practices and techniques, uh, that you, and rituals that you can save yourself and basically get yourself out of these, um, situations mentally and physically. 
Brilliant. No, I, I love hearing that. Thank you for, for your input. I've had, you know, Navy SEALs and all kinds of people on here that had to go to a different country to use, for example, um, uh, uh, you know, DMT or whatever it is. And overcame the PTSD you know they served their country they you know they saw their their brothers and sisters die for their country but they weren't able to use the more holistic tools that psychotherapy has found to be very very valuable because of our drug laws so they were literally going to Mexico to heal from the war the the wounds they got fighting for America so to me there's so many layers of you know of positivity that we could come yeah yeah, so the DMT is is also the 5-MeO-DMT or the MeO-DMT is, uh, you know, this also the spirit molecule. But if you think of your brain and your consciousness as a computer, like, and you, you go your whole life with just constant programming and programming and programming and experiences and this and this and downloads, but you never get a reset, you know what I mean? Sometimes that can be just overwhelming, that, just that one thing in itself, so... Uh, from my experience, the DMT work allows you to get that reset and, and break through a lot of the programming uh, and negative feedback loops that one accumulates along their path of, you know, 25, 35 plus years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your perspective on that. So I want to I want to get out the other end of your your military career so we can get to what you guys are doing now. So kind of walk me through your decisions to to uh, transition out of the military and then the the genesis of deep end fitness yeah sure so i guess i'll start on this so um i did uh three deployments with martok and it was my time to go over to the east coast uh to be an instructor uh over in north carolina um and i knew i was a team operations chief on my last deployment so i knew that by the time i got back i would go back into the same position or um pick up a team on my own to be a team chief. So I kind of promised myself that I would get out of the military when I stopped having fun. Uh, and I saw a lot of my leadership um, grow up and become people that I didn't want to see, especially within, within MARSOC. Got really political um, and uh, a lot of bureaucracy that I, I didn't want to kind of deal with at the time. Um, and I wanted to focus on and, and do something else for myself um, as well. So that was my decision on getting out um, in uh, 2017, I, I tried a year in the reserves with a uh, fourth force reconnaissance company, but um, going from an active duty uh, Marsoc unit over to fourth force is just is, is too much of a transition for me. So I ended that um, in uh, the end of 2018, beginning in 2019. Um, and I'll let Prime talk his piece and then we can go into um, how we started Deep and Fitness and the uh, UTL. Yeah, so I, in 2017, 2017 I was medically separated so uh, I had a uh, little hole in my inner ear from a blast injury and, and my back had been throwing out like I've been uh, having some back issues so I got medically separated um, and went straight into uh, business school at USC um, but at that time I had met up with Don and uh, he came over I was living in a condo at the time and we were in my kitchen and, and we were basically kicking around ideas on to what we were doing because we both ended up getting out at the same time. We had trained to go into special operations together. And then we ended up like, like I said, we, you know, we were right after each other in language school. Uh, we were right after each other in Afghanistan. As, as I was leaving, Don was coming on the bus and I saw him 
and like always kind of seen each other like in these random passings, but then we both ended up getting out at the same time. So we put our heads together and basically like did the research and, uh, and looked at the entire global landscape of uh, underwater activities. And we saw that this, this tool that we had been using called underwater football, that was a game that we had been playing since we had been at the pool 10 years ago um, was something that was, didn't exist anywhere. And we had always kind of, you know, it was always on the back of our mind. So um, we decided to launch that as a beta test, but also launch deep end fitness as the fitness arm, because basically that didn't exist either. And we had been able to do the workouts with the weights underwater when we had access to the pools on base because we were instructors. Right. But now that we're out and we're in, we don't have access to those pools anymore. Like we did. How do we do this stuff outside? Because it doesn't exist. So we're like, all right, so let's get insurance. Let's get two pools. Let's get mentors. We got everything kind of initial set up and we launched at the end of 2017. Brilliant. So for people listening, then um, let's talk about UTL first. So, um, you know, what what exactly does that look like? And then what was the benefit for, you know, the men and women in the pool with that particular sport? So the UTL is Underwater Torpedo League. And the benefit of it is water confidence, which translates directly to confidence. But uh, it's it's an underwater sport. It's also a team sport. So uh, teamwork, interpersonal communications, and you're also working on your breathing. So, and breath hold work. So you're, you're building your VO2 max and your, your, your breathing capabilities, as well as CO2 tolerance and your ability to perform for longer periods of time. So how we really thought like directly equate to real confidence is that when you go underwater for a specific amount of time, it's everybody's natural uh, kind of response to kind of be anxious and stress out and look for that source of air because we're, we're, we're mammals and we hit that mammalian dive reflex. So um, sometimes it causes people to go into that fire or flight, like, hey, I need to come up right now and I can't push any further. But is that really the point of break where they need to go up right away or can they push that for a little bit longer mentally and stay down for a little bit longer? So uh, we believe that we've seen it for ourselves is that we always constantly hit that fire or flight motion and we actively take that decision to stay in the fight and stay underwater for a little bit longer um, and understand our physical capabilities, of course, um, that it really allows us to handle stress and manage stress a lot better when we're outside of the water in any situation. Like, hey, I've been here before. I'm feeling anxious. Hey, I need to make a decision now. Or can I just take a second, calm myself down, think about the decision I need to make, and then push it forward? So that's the biggest benefit I've seen for it. And a lot of our athletes um, are attracted to that when they come and train with us, um, pushing forward. Now, an observation, because you, you were exposed to that in the Marines. Obviously, you had fellow Marines that were from all over the U.S., some you know coastal and some um, in the middle of the country. I, I've seen, I mean, tragically, a few cases recently where uh, an adult has tried to make a rescue of either their own child, someone else's child, and... Fortunately, I think the child has survived every single time, but the adult, whether it's a, um, a famous wrestler or, you know, if we had a firefighter recently, um, you know, they pass away. And there's all the talk about being the sheepdog in the community. So, you know, we work on our fitness, we train jujitsu, we do weapons, but there's never any discussion of swimming ability. And I, I was a lifeguard since I was, uh, 
what was it, 18, I think. Um, and to this day, I'm not an amazing swimmer. I'd get, you know, de- destroyed by any good competitive swimmer. But, you know, I had to learn to to be an effective rescuer, at least. What have you seen of the landscape of the US, the average adult, of, you know, swimming ability and confidence in water? Uh, so... It, it, it's it's a range, you know, um, but I, I would say that that generally speaking, uh, the majority of individuals that we see, whether it's in the military or in civilian uh, life, uh, rarely get that foundation of how to operate in the water and that that foundational building block experience. And now that's um, a lot of swim team like we also work with Olympic swimmers and stuff like that. They have a really good foundation. Obviously, they got tens of thousands of hours doing that activity, but still there's another layer to that of just basic fundamentals. So what we use, uh, the initial is two acronyms for all of our training, and I'll do the first one. I'll let Don do the second one that's more related to deep end fitness as well. But the first one is imagine that, you know, we, we get you to the pool. Uh, you We have you in a circle of trust is what we call it. So that's where we give out the plan of the day. And then we go around and everybody sets one goal or intention for the training. Um, we'll do some breathing warm-ups and then we'll get everybody in, start treading water. And as you're treading water, we go over these principles. So be safe is the first one. And this is all about efficiency and just getting your bearing in the water. So buddy system always in effect. Just like the incidences that you that you called, we always want at least a minimum of a buddy uh, uh, with any type of water training, ocean or pool. Um, and then you want an in-water safety for any underwater activities. Um, slow S, slow and easy movements. So jerky, fast movements don't help us in the water. We want to be slow, relaxed, deliberate, and intentional with all of our movements. Um, a, apply natural buoyancy. So this is like a hack, a cheat code to figuring out what anyone's strengths or weaknesses are in the water. So we'll have you put your hands at your sides, blow out all your air and see how fast you sink or float. If you sink, you're negatively buoyant. And then that means, you know, that's your strength is going down to the bottom. You could probably do that on a breath, go grab the weights, et cetera. So all the underwater work would be easier for you. Whereas just like us, it's harder to tread water on the surface. It's harder to carry a brick. And the reason is because your body's naturally sinking the whole time. So it's harder to keep yourself on the surface. F, full lung inflation. So lean back, create a flotation device with your chest. Uh, We promote power breathing during this. So you basically fill your lungs up and your diaphragm up at least 50%. And then you let it out to only let it back in. And so you always have at least 50% to 100% full flotation within your breathing box. And then the last one is extreme relaxation. So um, a lot of times, you know, subconsciously or psychologically, individuals have fear of the water, or just some type of thing. So we always try to bring it back to, you know, we're in Southern California. The weather's nice. We're all just practice that extreme relaxation because we have every, all of our needs are met here. So that's where we go into the first acronym, basically um, going into like a water survival uh, kind of instincts going into. So after that, we've developed on our own uh, this acronym called FREE, which stands for Focus, Relaxation, Economy of Motion, and Efficient Breathing. And going into focus is like we were just talking about a little bit earlier about how we have that mammalian dive reflex of, hey, our body's signaling us to, hey, that we need air. But that's really a, just a distractor. 
So how do we really focus our mind onto something that the task at hand and focus on that one thing at a time um, to accomplish the mission, whether that for us be swimming underwater or just um, crushing a presentation at work. So trying to limit those distractions out from our minds. Uh, the R stands for relaxation. We talked a little bit about that already, but on the performance side, we really go into on-demand relaxation. So how do we turn that on switch as much as possible? And we always bring a scenario into it. It's like, hey, if you're a big wave surfer, you're hitting a double set and you get tossed under a 30-foot wave. Like, what is your uh, what is your mindset supposed to do? And we actually train a lot of big wave surfers right now um, going into it. And the best thing you could do is turning that on switch on, just relax, try to find the surface as much as possible, but just remaining relaxed. Because the more you, your heart rate jacks up, the more oxygen you're burning for your body. The next one will go into economy of motion. Um, and really in the water for us, it's pretty black or white, right? Any extra movement, any, uh, non-efficient movement is really going to slow us down and create more drag for us. So, uh, really trying to streamline our body as much as possible, um, and really eliminate as much drag as possible. And the last one is, um, efficient breathing. So we talk a lot about the breathing patterns we do, um, how to slow our heart rate back down, slow our mindset back down. We use like the box breathing methods, um, the straw breathing methods, just different things to really allow us to slow our rate back down before we go underwater or do um, dive into something that we're stressful that we're not used to doing. Um, and I learned this method, the box breathing method from Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. I'm sure you've heard of him, but um, throughout my personal own experience in a few of my first firefights, um, I, I couldn't remember a lot of the things that happened because I was so amped up, so jacked up. So really just taking those breaths, going into my next deployments, like taking those breaths and slowing my mindset back down and allowing myself to think for a little second allows us to recollect everything and make better appropriate decisions. So those are the two principles that we base of all of our training off of. Um, and we don't just use it in the water, but we use it outside as well, um, coaching our, our athletes and individuals coming to our training. Yeah, well, I can see the, you know, the relatability to so many other areas. You mentioned, um, Dave Grossman. He actually was on the podcast a couple of times. So we had, you know, good deep dives into the psychology behind stress and the narrowing of the field of vision and all these other areas. But I want to touch on something. I want to do a myth busting for a second. Um, you talked about buoyancy. Now, I, when I was in sports science in uh, university years ago, we learned about body density, bone density. And, and one of the things that was empirically proven was, for example, as, as we're talking about races, the African-American race is is more dense. And I mean that purely on an um, anatomical um, plane and so tend to be less buoyant. I myself am a rock. If I breathe out, I will fall immediately to the bottom of the, the pool. But I've never broken a bone either. So there's definitely a bone density element there. With um, with your observations, do you tend to see there are there are um, uh, linear relationships between someone's ethnic background and buoyancy? Uh, just more, it's more like a, a generalization between you know someone that's ripped or someone that is muscular is going to sink, and that someone that is fluffy is going to float. But that's not always a hundred percent. So we've had bodybuilder type looking guys that float on the surface and it's like wow this is i've never seen this before but this is that's definitely what's happening you know um and they have a hard time getting down to the bottom but that's very very rare so like you know 95 97 percent of the time it's it's generally if someone is muscular and they have muscle mass uh that they're gonna sink someone looks uh like they have uh, excess fat or less muscle, more fat than they would, they're going to float or be neutrally buoyant is another 
thing. So that's like kind of best of both both worlds because you're in the middle. Yeah. So just just as a converse side to that equation, you have your elderly white female. They're the ones that can just lie on the on the water like they're a styrofoam <laughs> cup because they're you know their bones yeah. aren't dense they got osteoporosis by that point so but it's funny because people like yeah call that almost like a, a racial thing it's like no it's just it's anatomy and physiology that as you were saying the more muscle mass the more dense your bones the less buoyant you're going to be yeah brilliant all right well then you talked about the the healing element of what you do as well so i'd love to hear hear that element as far as the psychology well, for us, there's a lot of healing properties in the water. Um, so, you know, getting uh, the community is one, but also bringing it in uh, to, you know, the, the mental health portion of it and, and what we, the feedback that we get on, you know, the reset that pe- individuals get. Because if you think about it, as you're going into the pool, let's take any of the professional athletes that train with us. Some of them have their own shows on ESPN or they're, you know, they have like, six jobs when you start totaling it all up. Um, and so they come in and they have so many tabs open in their head that when they jump in the water and they go underwater, especially then they can close those tabs out because they're only focused on one thing. And that's like survival or, uh, making it through this drill. And then they can start to be more present and, and perform at a higher level. And they, they feel it immediately once, once we get into the training. So, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but also it's a recovery, 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 recovery method. So there's a lot of benefits for us to go down and and put our bodies uh, in the bottom of the deep end and do workload down there. But just us going down to, let's say, 12, 13 feet, that's like a compression sleeve that's wrapped around our body at that point. So there's a lot of healing properties that, that we can gain from that. And we're still allowed to push the, the athletes through a great workout in a low-impact environment. So uh, a lot of the fighters come to us on, like, their recovery day or their active kind of rest day and, and get a great workout still while they're not taxing their body anymore, punching the bags or kicking the bags or, or rolling around with their partners uh, for a duration of the time. So I think that's really attractive to some of the fighters that we've uh, been training recently as well. Yeah, well, you also seem to have many elements that I hear over and over and over again have healing properties. So obviously, you know, your pools are outside, so you have the daylight, you have the you know exposure to nature, you have water, and, and I, I see a lot of therapies being around surfing, around diving. So there's there's you know undoubtedly being in the water, and like you said, almost like the the weighted blanket element of being deep in the water. But then you've also got that tribal element, and and, and there's a level of trust of what you guys are doing. As you mentioned, you've got your buddy system, you've got the extra safety people. So all those layers seem like they would be a very healing environment for people it is and you nailed it on the head it is a tribal experience and environment and community uh we call it a no flex zone so we're all there to learn off of each other and we we also uh one of the opportunities that came up with covid experiment is we started using the beach and the ocean more so typically we have a couple beach workouts a week you know out here like venice beach and down in san diego at la jolla uh scripts pier um, where we'll go out and we'll do a workout on the, we'll do, we'll do the same thing. Circle of trust, breathing, warm ups, workout on the beach. And then we'll finish the cool down with a swim out to the end of the pier. And then we all as a group, one buddy at a time, like half and half go down and touch the bottom 
at 30 feet. And we've gotten to a point where we can go down and basically hang out down there for a few seconds and then come up slowly and methodically. And so that's a really cool experience to do with a group of people. And, you know, we, ob- we obviously make, you know, safety chains and do all types of different stuff. We have uh, setups to do that, but really, really good experience and tribal feeling as well. Yeah, especially going out to Venice where you're looking down, the water's a lot more murky than down in La Jolla and you can't even see your feet. So it's a really a fear factor where they're going down and pushing and driving all the way down 30 feet and, and going down and grabbing that sand. It's a, it's a mental barrier that they break um, that really is thrilling for most people coming out and it's like the highlight of their week. Um, it is for me, for sure. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Now, you mentioned um, fires. I know you have a, a gamut of different... Um, sports that that come to your training but i i know you have dominic dominic cruz and liz carmouche both you know ufc veterans so from a physical point of view and then also from a breath control point of view what is it that they're getting training with you guys that they're not getting at their mma gym or their strength and conditioning coach great question so uh liz carmouche one thing she got she couldn't even swim when she came barely she could barely tread water um so for her, she, now she's one of our top instructors. So she's gone from zero to a hundred with water confidence and her abilities in general. Um, now, uh, what that translates to for her is she's probably sets the standard with what we call burner rounds. So we, we designed these burner rounds that we started doing with Liz and Alima Leigh McFarland, where we, we put them underwater we start the round underwater, but it's five minute rounds and a lot of the round they're underwater. So their, their, their breath is cut off for, for a majority of the round. If that makes sense. They're coming up for air at certain points, but they're down there. So then, uh, they'll do that and then they'll have a minute off. So imagine in between a fight, like how they can even get complacent with their breathing in between rounds. There's zero, like they, they're fully, they're figuring out tools in between this minute that we give them off that they've never developed before to lower their heart rate and get mentally and physically ready to go into the next round. And we'll build them up to five, five minute rounds like that before if they're going in good championship fight, if they're doing a regular fight, it's three rounds. Um, and then I'll let, uh, Don hit Dom Cruz. Yeah. So, um, Dom really likes the low impact portion of us training him, of course, because he's hitting pads, he's hitting, hitting the gym twice a day and he has just had uh, a shoulder injury that he's kind of recovering from. It was about, yeah, he initially came to us recovering from a shoulder injury and that was about a year and some change ago. And so Dom's an instructor now too, but he, 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 when he couldn't do uh, his fight training, he came back and started rebuilding his shoulder in the pool and he's just built his water confidence and his VO2 max and his CO2 tolerance up from training with us that translates directly into his fight. So uh, with the CO2 tolerance portion, uh, you can imagine like just holding your what it's what it's like to do 20 push-ups and then what it's like to hold your breath and do 20 push-ups. You're, it's, it's a completely different experience. So what that is is CO2 tolerance is what you're building. And that's the lactate threshold. And so your ability to go longer in training without your chemicals firing and getting that quote unquote pump or that feeling like you're burnt, you're like, you're like, you're done. And so, um, building CO2 tolerance, you can actually create an adaptation 
once you establish a baseline and you just push it up and up and up and up. That's not saying that every session we're going up with each athlete that we have. Sometimes, you know, it's we're, we're just having a, an, another session and it's not getting to the next level. You know, it might be a relaxed session or mental focus work. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think it's the same that I see with our my population with, with anything, you know, a CrossFit, let's take, for example, where I found out myself, you know, you, you come off a pretty rough shift, you haven't slept, and, and my old philosophy was, well, I'm going to go sweat it out. And you do, you know, Murph or Fran or whatever god-awful, you know, workout is that day. And then it was actually ah. through through Jeff Nichols, who's a Navy SEAL and strength and conditioning um, guru, kind of made me realize like no you 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 have to deregulate so yes you want to move but that's not the day to do your high intensity stuff so i totally understand what you're saying yeah where are you located uh i'm in ocala about an hour north of orlando okay cool so maybe next time we're out in florida we hit you up yeah absolutely well I, i'm i used to work for anaheim fire so i'm going to be out in california probably next month so maybe i'll get to visit oh. you guys first Nah, man, definitely let us know. Let us know when you're coming so we can set it up. Absolutely. Man. I would love to. Thank you. All right, well, you, yeah. you touched on injuries. I just want to talk about that just for a moment. So you have Dominic Cruz. I mean, an incredible world champion UFC fighter or MMA fighter. Um, you know, what have you seen as far as the, the, the value of rehab in a pool versus on dry land? Well, you have the, the amount of resistance in every single way that you're moving under the water. So, of course, it's limited to what he can or can't do at the time. But you're getting a full body workout. You're getting that um, re rehab work in the water on that specific type of body movement as well um, with the amount of resistance that you want to do. So it's never more than you actually need. It's never less than you actually want. So it's a really great piece that people are actually using. Um, and they're actually going down to the bottom and getting that hydrostatic pressure that we were talking about uh, acting like a sleeve when we go down to the deep end so i think it's really good for uh we have work that we, we got yeah basically hitting uh multiple birds with one stone kind of thing so you know they're getting a lot in one session no matter what type of session it is and even if you're coming back from an injury and you're not able to do certain training like uh, for example, your fight training or whatever, if you're coming to the pool and you're doing rehab work, you can still train yourself and push yourself mentally and your, with your breathing capabilities and build that and expand that uh, while also building water confidence. So you're not like standing, you don't feel like you're sitting still or moving backwards. You're still evolving as an athlete and you're still learning and you're still, uh, you know, your mind is fully engaged and you're pushing your body and everything else. So it's a win-win. And especially with these elite athletes, but they need to feel that. They need to feel like they're improving themselves. They need to feel like they're bettering themselves. A lot of people need that every single day. So they feel like they're still accomplishing something uh, and working towards their goals, even if it's not um, physically in that body portion. Well, as, as a side note, when we're talking about elite athletes and obviously the, the high-level performers, um, I've seen certain people that are very, very heavy, morbidly obese, who have gone to the pool to train. You can't get someone who's, you know, four or 500 pounds to start jogging down the road. And I know even, you know, my dad's a retired horse vet and they use water for rehabbing racehorses too. So have you seen the application of water for someone who maybe isn't able to put impact on the joints? Um, for example, someone who's very obese in, um, you know, an adjunct to help them start burning calories without, you know, destroying their joints? Yes, we have had some uh, 
some of those types of swimmers come out that we've worked with. And, uh, it's, it's, we, we have the ability with every session, no matter what, to, to have basically like split off into beginner and, and advanced. So anybody that needs extra attention or working on the basics, we, we shift into that. And so with individuals like that, what we've seen is just like anything else, a crawl, walk, run, systematic building block approach to training. So just figuring out where they're at and what their limitations are. So we had an individual uh, that had hip surgeries that was coming back. So for them, it was just good to get them in the water, get them to tread and move and uh, lubricate their joints and get them in with the group, you know. And then from there, we, we started in like, okay, let's start. Everyone else is going down to the bottom from 13 feet, but with, with individuals like that, we might start at six feet and just doing a touch at six feet. You know, and then building up from there, if that makes sense, just to give an example. Very beneficial, and, and all it is 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 crawl, walk, run. So whatever it's going to take you to get out of crawl phase into walk phase, and if you can't hit the streets or the pavement running, go to the pool. Do some, Just find find the opportunity and just start doing it. Love it. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions, but before I do, I want to, I want you to kind of illustrate where you can find the website because you have some really, really good videos. So I could say, Oh, can you describe the exercises? But that would be pointless. If people go to the videos on the site, they're really going to get to see what you guys do as far as, you know, the, the weighted stuff, the dragging partners, all those different exercises. So where are the best places for people to find you online? Yeah. So you can check out our, our uh, fitness website, which is deependfitness.com. Or for to go into the league will be at utlnation.com. Uh, and you can find some of our video libraries, some of the workouts we've done on there, some online programs, uh, as well as sign up for our in-person classes um, on our website. Brilliant. And you do um, prep for uh, entry to the military as well? Yes. Yes, we do. So uh, because of our background, I think it attracts a lot of people uh, looking to go into special operations. Uh, so we do run uh, military prep seminars uh, for some of these individuals that are looking to really better their water confidence and get a little bit of mentoring from guys that have uh, done it before uh, before they take off. So currently, I think we have like 24 uh, individuals that have gone through our, our program uh, and pushed into some type of special operations or in the military in the process of, of doing that right now. Fantastic. All right. Well, I've got a, just a few closing questions for you both. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. We have our own book. It's called the Free Your Mind Guidebook. And it's all around uh, the free, your, the, the free operating system and acronym, focus, relaxation, economy, emotion, efficient breathing. Um, and that is, we just got a publishing deal last month with Morgan James. So uh, that will be released in April or May at, at the latest of next year. But we can also send you, uh, James, uh, we can send you the full PDF. We can send you the, the one-week sample if you want to send your users or whatever um, to get a taste, whatever, whatever we can send to add value we're, we're in. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you. I just released a book myself, so I know how much work it is. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thankful for Don because uh, we both have kind of different skill sets. So we're able to kind of complement each other in that way and close gaps. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about uh, a film, a movie, any movies and or documentaries that you love? 
man. What I the the documentary that I've been watching is the, a lot is the Thirty for Thirty uh, with for the UFC Chuck and Tito documentary on ESPN. And the reason why is because it's a re, it's a good case study of the sport, and and we're looking at it in relation to Underwater Torpedo League and Deep in Fitness as as like a case study. So I, I just think it's very interesting how far the UFC especially has came and the whole sport of mixed martial arts, uh, over, you know, since two, uh, 1995, really, when they started. Um, but, uh, yeah. Don? Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. All right. Next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah. Uh, Liz Carmouche, for sure. If you if you'd be interested in getting her on, uh, Dom Cruz is also big uh, military friendly as well. So him, um, who else? Don. Uh, one of our mentors, Derek Herrera. He was in the Raiders with us as well. He has a crazy story. Um, he's uh, done. He's, he he got out uh, about a year before us, 2016, and he. Um, started his own medical device company called Spinal Singularity. He was shot and injured and paralyzed from the chest down. So he ended up learning all about catheters. And so he created the first smart catheter. And uh, he's one of our mentors as well. He'd be a really interesting guest. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to ask you about Liz and Dominic anyway, because I think they would be fantastic. And then I've definitely heard of Derek before. So if you're able to connect me with them, I would love to get them on the show as well. Yeah, easy. yeah we'll connect here. you with all three and then and then we'll we'll do some type of training whenever you're out here next month absolutely i'm looking forward to it thank you all right so in the last question before i let you go what do you guys do to decompress when you're not in the pool or writing books uh i think having hobby leisure is huge with you know just work-life balance and integration so uh, one thing we've been doing lately is we started surfing so some of the pro surfers that we train in the pool, they take us out and train us in the ocean. And now we're surfing big waves and starting, you know, we're basically come, we're, we're in between crawl and walk phase. Um, other than that, uh, do Muay Thai and boxing and stuff like that. Uh, you know, um, jujitsu. And then other than that, just uh, being aligned and being around my, key relationships my key people and 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 that's really what helps to keep my oxygen mask on tight so that i can perform at the best that i can every day yeah because life gets super stressful especially with your own business so that time to decompress is huge so i'm pretty similar to prime but i like snowboarding during the winter just started surfing um these last couple weeks and we've been crushing it and then uh just working out going across the gyms with my friends um but yeah staying active camping outside hiking trips yeah. yeah and then usually have some type of fitness goal on the table so like you know i'm gonna hit this amount of reps on bench press with 225 or i'm gonna hit uh this deadlift or i'm gonna we're gonna do underwater bench press record again soon or whatever that is you know it's it's something that's like i i have a target that's that i that i'm so i have a, another focus that I can work towards, um, which keeps me evolving, which makes me feel good. That makes sense. It's like a martial artist. What's your current, what's your current one? What? What's your current fitness goal? My current fitness goal is the underwater bench press. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, but I just my popped out one of my ribs in jujitsu like four weeks ago, so I haven't been doing any type of bench press or anything like that. So, but that's next. So Don and I and one of our other instructors, Ricky, we all broke the Guinness World Record last year for the underwater bench press. But then it got yeah. broken like a month after that. So by the time we submitted it, this guy beat us already. So we're coming after him. I can't remember. <laughs> some, guy in, some guy in Ohio. I can't remember his name. Yeah, I'm sure he's a great guy, but we're coming after him. Yeah, we don't need to. We we don't want to beat the record. We want to shatter it this next time. So that it's like, all right, cool. We'll we'll leave it alone. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, silly question. What does that look like? Is that iron plates then? Yeah, uh, iron plates. The the standard uh, that that's used by Guinness World Records is one hundred and fifteen pounds. So you basically have to put yourself on surveillance. Show the show your your weights. Weigh them on the scale load the barbell, put it underwater with the bench, and then you go underwater and you, you have to have like ankle weights on or something to keep you down. And then you go down, you take a full breath, you go down, you know, pull the pull the bar up and then it's just, you know, chest and up as many reps as you can and kind of creating uh creating a process in your head just like anything else. This is what, you know, just like any underwater drill or anything that we train our athletes to do is to create a process and not do it in survival mode. So breaking it down into chunks that's digestible um, mentally and physically for you to do. So, you know, if we're doing 50 reps, I'll only be counting the five and I'll just count the five, 10 times. Ah, so, so you got a set weight and you're doing it for reps, not, not like a one rep PR or anything. No, it's, yeah, you're doing it. We're, we're, we're working on getting like 82 reps or something this next time. Okay, yeah. So this vision of being trapped under the bar after you failed <laughs> the bottom of the swimming pool. <laughs> no, nah, you could you could ditch it if you needed to, but we have spotters down there. They're holding their breath with you. Brilliant. All right. Well, you mentioned um, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. Just a quick side note. I know that, that one of the places that you're based in is Irvine. I used to train when I when I lived there with uh, Colin Oyama and Giva Santana. Do, do you train with with either of those two at all? We train with uh, some of the people from Team Oyama. Uh, Ron, this little, uh, my friend is a Vietnamese guy. Cool, so we train from there. Um, Carla in the UFC. Esparza. Uh, we train with her. Yeah, Carla Esparza. Um, and a few other members I can't think off the top of my head. But yeah, just a few individuals from there, not with the whole team. But yeah, awesome, awesome crew. Yeah, no, they were. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, I just want to just say, you know, it, it's been an unorthodox interview. Like you said, you guys are in the car and, and it's, it's worked. I think it absolutely has worked. But I appreciate you telling the story. I mean, you know, the, the parallel journey through the Marines and the Raiders and then into what you're doing now and how that's applicable, not only to, you know, you guys specifically, but all these high level athletes and definitely the tactical athletes and then the mental component as well. Um, I urge everyone listening to go to your website and check it out. But thank you both for, for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for having us. Yeah. We look forward to training you in the pool when you come out in a few short weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. And we hope and we hope that anyone listening to this, you know, it's it's any it's especially if you're in any type of transition, um, trust the process, you know, get mentors uh, and and we hope that any of this information is helpful. And please don't be uh, afraid to, to reach out to us as well. I think our emails are on the website, so let us know if you guys need anything. Yeah.